0: a podcast that harnesses the power of personal stories and meaningful work in 24 minutes. My name is Sophia Sokolovsky, and I came across an article in the New York Times that was published in 2017. It was written by a group of researchers at Yale University. They essentially said that they had conducted an experiment that turned conservatives into liberals. So being a psychology minor in college I was really intrigued, and I decided to reach out, and the lead researcher, John Barge, was the person who I got in contact with. He is a professor at Yale University. Before he taught there, he was on the faculty of New York University for 22 years. He has researched the unconscious influences on everyday choices, feelings, and behavior for nearly 40 years, and he authored the book before you know it, that was also published in 2017. Tonight, President Trump is giving the 96th State of the Union Address, and so I'm hoping that John will help elucidate some of the political tensions that we feel and why we decide to align ourselves with different ideals in our political system. Also, because we're coming out of a government shutdown and the wall has been the main cause for this, I'm hoping that he will able to bring to light some of the fears of the American public, why they feel that way, and why they feel so strongly aligned with President Trump, or against him. So without further ado, John, tell us about who you are, what you study, and how you came to be in the position you're in today. It's a bit of a loaded question.
1: Wow. Okay, so I'm a professor of psychology at Yale. I've been at Yale since 2003. Before that, I was at NYU for 22 years in Greenwich Village. I started there when I was 25 in 1981, and then I moved to Yale in 2003. I grew up in Illinois in a small town. Actually, it's where the university is, Champaign. Uh, it's still a small town, and then went to Ann Arbor for graduate school. And then the first time I ever came to New York City was when I had the interview for the job there, and I was a bit of a culture shock. But I sure learned a lot about uh, my field, social psychology, from being dropped in the middle of Manhattan as a little country boy. And, uh, you know, not just the amount and number of people everywhere that you had to sort of uh, figure out and understand what, the, what they were doing and, and quickly, too. But the fact that it's such a cosmopolitan you know, city that uh, there are people from all over the world. And I got exposed to lots of different cultures and, and uh, everything, you know, just what, what New York does for you.
0: You must have loved the immersion process, though, being around such diversity.
1: Absolutely, I mean, you know, you just have to. Uh, you, you, if you're if you're interested in people, obviously, I was, and I was observing all the time, uh, and it was just overwhelming. But that's where I learned uh, social psychology. I think I learned more my first month in New York City than I did in four years of grad school. Even though I went to a great grad school and learned a lot, but what I learned in grad school is a lot of the past theory and a lot of methods. And I didn't really have a sense, intuitive sense about um, about people. But see, my, my uh, when I was born and when I sort of came of age in the 70s, the issue of the time was uh, psychology was in turmoil. It was being overthrown. The dominant idea of Skinner and, and uh, behaviorism was being overthrown by what we call the cognitive revolution. So after 50 years of, yeah, uh, Skinner and the behaviorists since 1920 or so insisted that uh, psychology could not study the mind, could not study awareness or thinking or attention or anything to do with the mind. It was bizarre. And uh, they did a lot of studies on rats and pigeons. And then finally in the 1960s, people started saying, you know, enough of this. We want to study the mind. We want to study thinking and and decisions and attention and uh, uh, emotions and all that. And it took a long time to finally throw over that establishment. But this was happening in the 60s. And so we finally started being able to study things about these existential issues like free will, like consciousness and unconsciousness and and questions that we've never studied scientifically. You know, we had Freud with his theory of the unconscious based on mental patients and based on just a few people, but no systematic study of the average person in average situations in real life and how much of that is they're aware of and how much of that do they intend and how much do they not. And And so, Freud, of
0: course, I mean, he was really one of the, the people and researchers who was making strides in his field. Absolutely.
1: And, and back then, really, all it was was, was rats and pigeons and Freud. Right. So
0: we really <laughs> didn't have
1: any science of people. I mean, the average person in in, the, in in situations. And so that's what we started doing. This is what was exciting about what I try to convey in the book was that this is the first time in human history we actually have a systematic and scientific understanding based on 30, 40 years of research on the average person in controlled uh, lab studies and field studies, and they all sort of converge on, on some basic ideas. But when we started this question, you know, this was the heyday of consciousness is needed for everything, and this is our superpower, and consciousness is great, it's responsible for all of civilization, but there was no evidence, there was no data, there was just an assumption. And it was a knee-jerk assumption against the behaviors who said that none of it was, you know, none of your conscious mind mattered at all. So it it went from none to all. And so what the studies have done is pretty much whittle that all down to size. So it's not everything. Consciousness and intentions don't underlie everything. But they are important for some things, obviously. It's a good thing we have it. But it's not that they do everything 24-7, which is what we were being taught in the 1970s.
0: And of course, we've seen unconscious biases play out, especially in the last few years, because we've been shedding light on sometimes the destructive behavior that they have. But they also come out when we try to secure our own safety and the safety of the ones we love, whether that's providing food, shelter, clothing, making sure we have those resources that we essentially need for survival
1: right this is this is one of the main ways unconscious influences happen to us they happen because of our evolved motives and things like safety and survival um being free of uh, avoiding disease and avoiding contamination uh and and they underlie what we think of as abstract sort of like uh you know real like today kind of motivations like um uh, our political attitudes. We think they're reasoned and we think they're the result of a lot of thought and, and consideration, but really they're serving these underlying deep motives. Bob Woodward's book, for example, named Fear, and this is exactly what this political psychology was showing, that when you make people afraid, when you threaten them, they become more conservative in their political attitudes, especially their social attitudes, not necessarily economic attitudes. And a lot of people had taken liberals or Democrats, let's say, and made them into Republicans temporarily by threatening them. They become more conservative. No one had ever done the reverse. No one had ever taken liberals and made them into conservatives. And and again, we're talking temporarily, right? We're not talking permanently, right? temporarily in the lab. Right,
0: yeah. It's interesting to me that you mentioned that primarily in the past, liberals were made to adopt conservative ideals in a scientific setting because- to me, that mirrors real life. Often we see young liberals who mature, they get older, and they become conservative as adults because they have more responsibilities, sure. maybe, and sure. therefore a heightened need for security.
1: Yeah, uh- yeah. Uh, Sophia, that's a great point because these political attitudes are multiply determined. This is not the only reason, This this fear safety thing is not the only reason, it's an influence. But when you get older and you have more to lose, you want to be more conservative to to keep what you have. And so it makes sense that older people who have more resources, homes, uh, money in the bank, uh, are more conservative for for just rational reasons, maybe. But there is this underlying interesting finding in political psychology that um, conservative people tend to be more concerned with physical safety than liberal people are, to the point where they even have larger amygdala's that's the fear center of the brain and brain scanning has shown that conservatives have larger fear centers actually physically in their brains um and there's lots of this converging evidence and you know i i i sometimes get people say oh you're just saying that conservatives are scaredy cats and what i i don't want to say that because you know being concerned with physical safety and survival is how we got to where we are today if our ancestors weren't concerned with that we wouldn't be here it's a very, very adaptive and and rational thing to be concerned with your physical safety mm-hmm. and the survival, as your as well as your children and your family and everybody like that. But but it tends to be that when you are afraid, you become more conservative, for whatever reason that is. Remember when when Roosevelt said, "We have nothing to fear but fear itself." Now he wasn't talking about World War II. He wasn't talking about uh, enemies of world in World War II. He was talking. In, that was his first State of the Union address in 1933 at the height of the Great Depression. He was talking about the New Deal. He was talking about let's not be afraid of change because we need to make these changes because we're in this horrible economic uh, situation right now. Um, so liberals are you know, trying to get you not to be afraid. Barack Obama in his last State of the Union also said similar things about let's not let the politics of fear uh, persuade us to do this or that. We shouldn't be afraid. We're a strong country. We don't really have a need to be so afraid all the time. But conservatives want you to be afraid.
0: But that's not an easy feat, eliminating fear from someone's consciousness by any means. So how did you and your team do just that?
1: This is, as a psychologist, this is fascinating to me because uh, it's easy to threaten people and make them afraid because there's real things to be afraid of. Now, how do you get people to turn off that need need for safety and survival? I mean, it should be there all the time. And we just used an imagination exercise. We had them... Uh, Imagine they uh, uh, were some foreign country and let's say there's a bazaar, a shopping area and a genie, they open a a bottle, a genie appears, some some story like that, or it could be a dream either way. Uh, But the genie says, I'm going to grant you a superpower and you have your choice. Uh, Actually, in our study, we gave them the superpower, but you could also do it the other way. But uh, our control condition was the genie says, you wake up tomorrow morning, you'll be able to fly you'll soar over the rooftops, you'll fly around, It's like just like a bird. And, and that's actually the number one requested superpower of people. It's what we want to be able to fly. I, me too. <laughs> I, that would be mine. That's
0: my number one choice. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But the other condition was a little more mundane, maybe prosaic, but it was that you will be free from physical harm, that you will not have anything bad happen to you. Bullets would bounce off you. If you fall off a building, you bounce, knives can't cut you. And in the exercise, you really imagine this richly, like really having this. And and, and being totally immune from physical harm, and being totally safe from physical danger. And then we give them the measures of conservative and liberal attitudes. And that's where we see this big change. And even on the, on the core idea of, of conservatism, which is resistance to social change on that, on that one scale, you get no difference between liberals and conservatives after they've imagined themselves being physically safe. The fly condition, imagining to fly, there's no change. There's no effect of of imagining having the superpower to fly. It's only feeling totally physically safe. Turns off this need to have conservative attitudes or at least the, the flame underneath the pot that's boiling up there with the conservative attitudes. You're turning down the flame underneath, which is the evolved concern with physical safety and survival. So it just shows how these deep kinds of motives that we would never think are affecting us at this high level of our reasoned political attitudes are still underneath them. And and what we think of as, you know, just our our chosen attitudes really are in the service, ultimately, of these deep, important motivations that we've evolved over millions of years.
0: Can you talk about these findings in our current political climate? And can these findings be used to explain—because— Trump had a base that was deeply moved by what he was saying in terms of building a wall and in terms of securing borders, in terms of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of raising these nationalistic ideals to, as he says, make America great again. So can these findings be used to explain in part why Donald Trump was elected president?
1: Yeah, you know, the, 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 the thing is, my personal beliefs aside here, uh, we are being manipulated both ways because we can be manipulated to feel safe, safer. It's a hard thing. We, we always will err on the side of, of being more concerned with danger than safety. It's, it's just natural that you should be more concerned with dangerous things than with safe things for, for obvious reasons. So it's always going to be more easy to, easier to make people afraid than to make them feel safe. And appealing to, to rational, you know, we shouldn't feel afraid is not working because it's not a rational thing. Building up the idea that we're in danger, that we have this threat. I, and even but, but I don't have the answer to this for the very reason that what people are basing these um, judgments on is what they get from the media. And we have a real problem, obviously, with what they're getting from the media. If you're only focusing on one source, you trust that source. And that source is telling you there's this huge danger then the danger is real because that's what you're hearing in the media. That's what you're hearing in your trusted news sources. And then it's a rational thing. We have this great danger. We need the wall to protect us from that danger. So it's not really the emotion and the fear problem here. It's the, the information that people are using to be, to base their fear on. And as long as that's manipulated, I'll tell you, I'm finding out as you are probably right now, I was manipulated by the, uh, the red, uh, red hat Covington kids. At the Lincoln Memorial, I got on Facebook and I was saying, this makes me sick, you know, how these high school kids are treating this guest as Native American, the, you know, all this stuff. And I was very upset about it. And then people said, well, you know, maybe that's not the whole story. And then I was further totally fooled by the mocked up tweets from the, the supposedly from the high school kid's mother that she said all these nasty things about Indians and stuff so, and so forth. And I said, look, this is where the kids are getting it from their parents. And I'm on, you know, with my high school friends and Facebook from back in Illinois, all mad about this. And I find that I just was manipulated by this. I don't know if it's fake news or not, but I was manipulated by these made up fake posts and fake tweets that this mother never made. And I was totally manipulated by it. So here I am falling for the same thing. You know, if I get this information, it seems credible to me, given my my own personal you know, opinions and biases, I react to it. And I feel very emotional and very strong about it. I, I totally can see how people can do this if they believe what they're reading.
0: Right, right. But well, we live in a society where our news sources are at our fingertips. So how do we ensure that what we are viewing in print or online is accurate? And how do we as members of the general public, decipher, you know, what is fact from fiction. How do we know yeah. what the truth is and what what is fake news? yes
1: yeah. Well, uh, your listeners can't hear me grinning right now, but this is the big question, isn't it? If I had that answer, you know, I hope that people would listen to it. If I had that answer, that is the big question. You know, this whole echo chamber—we've only listened to what uh, confirms our pre-existing beliefs. A huge, long-standing issue in psychology lots of people researching it trying to come up with ways to get around it
0: you know john with with 2020 in mind and with the 2020 presidential election in mind and with a president who i presume will be running how does a candidate of the opposing party Best rebuke fear and win over voters. So, how are they able to capture audiences when they're going up against someone who has been able to, to a certain extent, gain support purely because they're striking a chord with the insecurities and vulnerabilities and real fears of their supporters?
1: You know, we, we, we yeah, I mean that. That's. Uh, I wish again I had an answer to that. The um, the. Here's the thing. We, we have FDR, we have Barack Obama, we have very astute politicians trying to, con, trying to persuade people not to fall for this, to not be afraid. And saying it directly and persuasively, I don't know of much more than that we can do because what we need to do is convince people that um, what they're doing is against their own self-interest. But that's so obvious and patent to so many of us. That uh, what's going on is against our self-interest. Take the tax reform. I mean, there's so many things here that are really against the interests of people who are falling for this, and yet they continue to. There was a great book a while ago about what's wrong with Kansas. I forget uh, somebody named Frank, last name Frank, wrote it, and it was again, you know, again how politicians are are uh, running on platforms that are against the people's uh, interests uh, that they represent, and why do they keep voting for these people? You know who. Like Kansas, uh, politicians who were against farm subsidies, but but yet yet they were voting for these people. So we tend to make our voting decisions on quick and easy kinds of gut reactions, often to even just the there's another part of my book uh, we talk about um, faces that uh, people look trustworthy or they look not trustworthy. Uh, or they look competent or not. And it turns out that that predicts 70% of all elections in the United States. Just what It's other, purely
0: based on yeah. how they look.
1: Yeah. It's like people who don't even know who these people are say, who is more competent or more trustworthy based on one-tenth of a second exposure to these candidates' faces and their judgment of trustworthy, competent for these people. They don't even know who they are, not running for anything, no idea who they are. That predicts 70% of the governor and Senate races in the United States. And it works in France, and it, it's just based on the the face, the facial structure, and the, yeah. the look of the face.
0: And is it the same for men and women, or is there? A difference? I don't know
1: that. I think I don't think it is. I think it's the same for both of us. And and it has.
0: To, I know the same is true for heroes and villains in Disney movies. The illustrators use certain features so right. the viewers can distinguish sure. good and evil. You know. Purely based off of a glance, purely by seeing these characters yeah. in, in photos. Yeah.
1: No, that's uh, this is Alex Todorov's research at Princeton. Mm-hmm. He's actually – he is, he has written a book called Face Value, which is phenomenal. And basically what his point is, these faces are not diagnostic. Uh, it goes back to the old thing of phrenology. We used to be able to think we could read a person's character from their the face, the way it looks, or the bumps on their heads. And this is like a 100 something years ago. And it's it's not true. It, it, it doesn't predict anything at all. There's some reasons why we do this, but it's such a strong tendency that we judge people just by their looks or their faces and so forth. And this is the way we vote for people. And we vote on emotion and we vote for what feels good to us. And sometimes what feels good to us is to send a message to Washington and, you know, screw you guys, you know, I'm going to vote for this idiot. Sorry. You know, because it's uh, you know, this is not one of you. This is an outsider. This is somebody who'll shake you guys up, because I feel left out and alienated. So there's the the emotional reasons. You know, I remember early on why was Trump winning all the primaries, and people were saying, "Well, it's you do the economic analysis. His his supporters really aren't these these people who are unemployed and who need the jobs. That that's not they could not understand." From demographics and and, uh, and information about, you know, those people's lives, they could not understand on those data alone why he had the support he did. Only after the fact, thanks to Michael Moore and others, it's emotions. It's emotions. And they can't get emotions out of the kind of data that are available you know, from economics and and, uh, and other kinds of demographic information. You don't get emotions out of that. So until we get that information, we're not going to predict all that well in the future.
0: It's certainly a wake-up call reminding us to check ourselves and our subconscious at work and to not only realize really that our regular sources are not always right, but to go even <sighs> further and do yeah. some personal fact checking. I,
1: I feel funny even saying that, given I just fell for it. You know, I thought it was accurate. You know, I, I, I didn't know. And somebody fortunately found out and said, you know, this is these tweets were fake. This mother never said these things. And that changes everything in my mind. But if someone hadn't done that digging mm-hmm. and, and, and found that
0: out, wouldn't have known. Yeah. <laughs>
1: You know, I I fell for it just like anybody else would.
0: Yeah, you and I both, you and I both, I think it's interesting to watch the full video. Yeah. See the full thing. And um, I guess with that, I want to say thank you very much for coming on. I'm looking forward to reading your book. Your book is called Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do... What we do, and so I'd love to have you back on and uh, to kind of dive yeah. into that as yeah, well. Yeah, the, the
1: the immigration and flu virus stuff. You have to you have to read that part too, because that's that's absolutely crazy. But I would love to do that. Great. Uh, with my book, just try it. Just read the first chapter. It's mm-hmm. The whole point. If you like it, keep going. If you don't, put Definitely it down. Definitely will do. And that's all I ask. Just just. Just give it a chance. No, I
0: I definitely will do. And I'm trying to read a book a week, so I'm going to add it to the list. Oh,
1: wow. You probably could. (laughs) It's short, it's fast. But anyway, thank you for having me on. I really really enjoyed it. Thank
0: you very much, John. Subscribe, rate, and review 24 The People on Apple Podcasts and listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along on Instagram and Twitter at 24 People. I'm your host, Sophia Soglovsky, and until next time,